Just before we have prayer, uh, let me say thank you for uh, staying with the book of Ecclesiastes for a couple more studies. Uh, this is a difficult book to understand. Um, I think one of the reasons, uh, a main reason why it's so different, uh, difficult to understand is it's just different from every other book that we have in the Bible. Every book of the Bible has a main focus and a main uh, purpose. It's very clear to understand and to follow. When we come to the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, we have uh, two voices, really, speaking. We have uh, two speakers actually talking to us. Voice number one, Solomon is telling us about life under the sun or under heaven. And as he talks, we hear him speaking, he's thinking, he's reasoning, he's making conclusions, just like people who live their lives without God. God is completely dismissed. He is not a part of the picture, part of their process. And as he makes these observations and he's writing about it, he's telling us, what life looks like when there is no God. Uh, what life, when people are looking at it, what they're thinking, how they're feeling, their conclusions about what they see and how they feel. Uh, and the conclusions are always the same. Uh, life is just filled with despair and drudgery and meaningless. Life is not uh, reliable, it's not helpful. God is not helpful, he's not reliable, and this total despair, that's voice number one, as people look at life and they think about what they see, what they have to live with, that's the same conclusion over and over again. It's really a, a book of despair if all you hear is verse or voice number one. In voice number two, uh, Solomon again is speaking, then he begins to add these statements that there is a God and he is with men. He has gifts for men. He wants their lives to be filled with meaning and purpose. He wants them to be able to enjoy life. In fact, the first time that we see this phrase on our study today, uh, he will talk about the joy of his heart, uh, the joy that people can have in their hearts because God is with them and caring for them and they're walking with him. And as we listen to these two things, chapters, these two voices, when we come to chapters five and six this week and next week, we come to the conclusion of the first half. Uh, in chapters one through six, Solomon makes observations of life and now there's no questioning about it God is front and center, and voice number two becomes more dominant. It's his reasoning, his words, it's very, very clear what he's saying. That, that meaning will be found in this world with God, but meaning in life will never be found in this world without him. And now God is front and center as we bring the first half of the book to a conclusion. Uh, so turn to chapter five, we're gonna have prayer. 
and then we're going to look at how he really brings his point home. Meaning in life, uh, real understanding of life and joy of life will be found when a man or a woman simply walks with God and enjoys his gifts. Okay, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Are you there? Okay, let me have prayer and then we'll look at this chapter together and then we'll have discussion. <clears throat> Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful today that again we can look at the Bible. Thank you for helping us with Ecclesiastes. Uh, we need patience to understand how to think through this book. It's so different from others. But Solomon makes his point very clear today. And as we look at this together and then next week, uh, his message to us is so very clear. Father, uh, we will have meaning in life when we walk with you. Uh, not by living in this world without you. Uh, but we just pray that you would help us to understand what Solomon is saying, take it to heart, and then help us as we move along. And we'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Let me hold up this book. I didn't hold it up close enough last time or high enough. A booklet that I would encourage you to get. It's by Warren Wearsby. It's by Cook Publications. Uh, it's Be Satisfied. It's very devotional. It's very clear, very simplistic. It doesn't get too deep, but key thoughts of just practically putting this together and I think if you want to read something on your own, uh, this would be a great, uh, great book for you to have. Be Satisfied by Warren Wearsby. Uh, you'll like the book. There's no mistaking it now as we come to chapter 5 and 6 and as he ends the first part of this book, chapters 1 and 6, Solomon is sharing with us different observations he makes about life. From chapter 7 to 12, it becomes more like the book of Proverbs where he gives us advice. But having given us all of these observations about life in chapters 1 up to now chapter 5, he now drives his point home. There is no meaning in life without God. And notice what he does in chapter 5. He's going to take us to the temple of all things. Uh, today, going to church, believing in God, that's optional for people. People don't want to believe in God, they don't have to. That's what they're taught. That's what people just, that's what they go along with. If you don't want to go to church, that's optional too, as our culture thinks about things. But for the Jewish person, then those two things were not optional. It was part of their DNA. They were God's people. Uh, they believed in God. Uh, they were taught that, and they believed it deeply. They were also schooled in going to the temple and worshiping God there. That was a part of their life. And as we open chapter 5, what's very obvious, uh, there's no discussion about is there a God or is there not? Should we believe in him? Nope, that's right. That's taken care of. Front and center, it's all about God. And as we go to the temple, and he stays there for a while, he says there's some things that need to be worked out in their relationship with God. Notice as I read the verses, and then we'll come back and look at them. 
chapter 5, verse 1, keep your foot when you go to the house of God. It's like, okay, uh, just take it easy. Uh, listen, be careful. You're going into God's house. Keep your foot when you go to the house of God and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools. For they consider not that they do evil. Now notice the terminology as, we, as he talks to them about how they come to God's house. Verse 2, be not rash with your mouth, and let not your heart be hasty to utter anything before God, for God is in heaven, and you are upon the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes through the multitude of busyness, and a fool's voice is known by a multitude of words. When you vow a vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that, that which you have vowed. Better is it that you would not vow at all than that you should vow and not pay. Suffer not your mouth to cause your flesh to sin, neither say before the angels, some of your Bibles, the messenger, that it was an error, wherefore should... Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words, there are also different vanities. Fear God. Now he's talking about uh, their coming to the temple in Jerusalem. And he's talking about not only their approach, how they come, being there, uh, prayers, uh, making vows to God things that were key for uh, their religion in their personal life with God. But notice as I go through here again, just notice how many phrases let us know that there's something that's not right here. Uh, in verse 1, the sacrifice of fools, uh, doing evil, the last part of verse 1. Verse 2, being rash with their mouth, uh, hasty to speak, uh, let your words be few. Uh, verse 4, or again verse 3, fools, the fool's voice. Uh, in verse 4, uh, he has no pleasure in fools. Uh, verse 5, uh, allow your mouth to cause your, don't allow your mouth to cause your flesh to sin. Uh, it's these repeated negative phrases. Let us know that there's something that's not right here. They are going to the temple. They are, in a sense, going through motions. But there are different ways. Uh, there is a repair of their worship that needs to be addressed. And that's what he's talking about here. God is front and center. When you come to the house of God, you need to come properly. And so we want to work our way through this as we uh, see about what he does. In verse 2, or verse 1 rather, be more ready to listen. Listen. Be prepared. Think about what you're doing when you come into God's presence. Think about uh, what he may want to talk with you about, how he may want to, in, to address you or speak to you or maybe encourage you, uh, maybe rebuke you. But you need to be thinking about 
the position that you put yourself in when you come to God's house. And then he uses this phrase, uh, be ready to listen. Don't be so ready to offer the sacrifice of fools. Now we know that in the Jewish temple there were animal sacrifices. This one was referred to as the sacrifice of fools. Now in Hebrew, there was there is a word for burnt offering. That's when a worshiper would bring the animal and the entire animal would be consumed on the altar. Uh, the person would stand there and they would be in devotion. They would be giving themselves to God. Just as the whole sacrifice was being consumed, the person was saying with their life, they will be consumed for God. They will love him. They will live for him. And that's what that sacrifice uh, displayed. It was the burnt offering. This is a different offering. This is the fellowship offering, sometimes referred to as the meal offering, whereas the animal was placed on the altar, a portion of the meat, some of the choice meats, were reserved and they were taken to a table near to the altar where the person who brought that sacrifice would be sitting with his family and that they would have a, let's say, a Thanksgiving meal together. It was called the Thanksgiving offering, sometimes the meal offering. We see it in 1 Samuel chapter 1 where Elkanah has his family there. Uh, Hannah, who has no child, is there. Uh, we know that he gives her several portions during that. Uh, Penina, his other wife, not such a pleasant lady who is there, but they are having their meal offering. And, and at this particular point, when it says this sacrifice of fools, it means a couple of things, that when these people have come to sacrifice and to be in God's house, as they're getting ready to uh, have their, again, I'll refer to it as a Thanksgiving meal with our family around, that's very special for us. But as they gather in the temple, they're really not ready for it. They're not prepared at all. It's very casual, it's very social. It's so, they're, they're treating it very commonplace. And they're forgetting that they're in God's house. And God really is not pleased that he is being neglected, that he is not being honored the way that he should be when they gather in the temple of all places for this meal. That could be one of the things that's referred to here, or possibly uh, it's like what Saul did, the first king, where he tried to use a sacrifice to cover up definite disobedience or sin in his life. You remember that. For those who are familiar with Samuel's life and Saul, the first king. And it reminds us that there are times that people, when they are not right with God, something's not right, they've done something that's wrong, or they're not doing what they know they should be doing. And they know they're not right with God, but in their mind they think, okay, well, I'll do this, and that'll make everything okay with God. That doesn't work, but that some, sometimes is the way that people think. And in this particular passage, something's happening. And as these people come to God's house, they are simply not right with God. They're not prepared 
to have this time with God that should be sacred, should be very meaningful and helpful for them. And it really challenges us today in the year 2020, how do we come to God's house? How do we prepare to give God time to speak to us, to minister to us, to encourage us, maybe to direct us, rebuke us, but how do we think about God when we come to church? Now, church is very social. That's one of the great things about church. We can be with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We look forward to that, and we should. God has made us a family, and it's great when God's people can be the family that God's wanted them to be. But there comes a time where it's, whether it's with the music, the singing of the, the songs, or uh, listening to God's word, having a time of prayer when one of the men leads us, one of the ladies leads us in prayer. We need to push back everything else and realize this is uh, between us and God. How do we do that? How do we make sure that we are giving God the right quality of time and allowing him to be able to minister to us the right way? How do we see him? Uh, how do we enter? Maybe there's something that we can talk about after this is done, but it's pretty easy to see what Solomon is talking about here. You need to think about your relationship with God. Meaning in life is found with him. And if we're not right with him, life is not going to be meaningful. If things are going to be out of kilter. It's not going to work. We're going to be in that drudgery and despair. It just, meaning in life is found with God. It's not found by living in this world without him. And so if there is not a right relationship, if it needs to be repaired, we, we need to take care of that. Secondly, he talks about praying. He see, says in verse 2, Be not rash with your mouth, with your words. Let not your heart be hasty to say anything. Uh, for God is in heaven, you are upon the earth. Let your words be few. And he's talking about words that are rash, that are harsh, that many are uh, just too many words here. It's God is telling us, hey, would you just stop? I don't want to hear what you're saying. And I'm thinking, oh my word, can you imagine if God's voice were to break through, just touching in our hearts, would you be quiet? I don't want to hear this anymore. I don't want you, I don't want you to talk that way. Annoying, harsh, rash. And it refers to the way that people talk when they come to prayer, not only what they say, but how they say it. Um, I was reminded that in Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus is talking to people in the Sermon on the Mount on praying, uh, he gives us the, uh, a prayer, a model of prayer to follow. But he says, when you go to prayer, don't use vain repetitions. Don't be babbling on and on like the heathen do because it says they think that they will be heard for their much speaking. Maybe some people feel that way. Uh, they feel if they can talk more, the more they talk, God will be pleased. Or the intensity that they speak and try to share and everything is urgent to them and very, very um, 
emotionally charged. Well, God doesn't want us to approach him in our prayer life the right way. And if you remember what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, he says, enter into your closet and the God who hears you, your Father who hears you in secret, will reward you openly. And the words that he uses there, talks about private communion. But rewarding you is the word for treasure chest. When you are alone with God, when you are right with God in your personal prayer life, God will reward you and give you some wonderful blessings. He will let you know that your prayer is heard. He will give you confidence. He, sometimes he can take burdens away. He can make things clear. But it is our quietness, our aloneness, our full focus on God, not by babbling, not by being intense with our words, but by being focused on Him in the right way. Our words don't have to be many. They need to come from our heart. They need to be guided by truth. They need to be genuine. God will meet us when we pray. One of the things that I did when uh, I was just beginning in the ministry uh, is I read some of the prayers of the Puritans, uh, people who lived in that era. Uh, their prayers were brief, but I was amazed with how much meaning they had in them, how much truth and insight and they were able to say so much in their prayers so briefly. And I know that, that there are people today, probably a few of you, you journal, you collect your thoughts together and put it down on print. And that's a great way of collecting our thoughts. Praying, we need to be careful that in our prayer life that it doesn't become a time where it's so casual. We're in, we say a lot of words, we come out. We have really no idea what we've said when it's all over and done with. When we are talking with God, we need to remember how wonderful He is, how great He is. There needs to be a part of our lives that, that genuinely adore God. We stop and remember who He is, that He is listening. It makes a difference to pray. And that we just make it a meaningful time, not only for us, but a time that God would be very glad that we have had with him. So let me encourage you to think about praying. How do you focus on your praying time? Uh, I think that's good for all of us. He moves into the third area, uh, talks about making vows, and that's something that was very important. Uh, oh, let me read this in verse 3. For a dream cometh through the multitude of business, busyness, and a fool's voice is known by the multitude of words. Going back through praying and things like that. <coughs> and also in verse 7, attaching verse 7 to this area of praying. For in the multitude of dreams there are many words uh, and also much vanity. Just fear God. And, and you have this... Uh, these references to dreams. Uh, I thought what one of the men that I was reading made this statement. Let me just share it with you. 
And he says that uh, the Hebrew text may be translated in many dreams and visions, and there are many words. Uh, he's saying that, that because of dreams, there are many illusions in dreams. Dreams are many times are just not real. And he says the point is that people are prone to carry their illusions with them into their worship. And they can carry their illusions into them when they talk without thinking. If a vow is made this way or prayer is being made this way, the worshiper is treading on dangerous ground. The remedy, you learn to fear God and worship Him. And what he's saying is that there are times where we speak and our words are no more than our dreams. They're just filled with illusions, things that are not real. We need to think about what we're saying. Let's go back to the vows now. Sorry for being interrupted there. Vows were times where people promised to God that they would do things. Um, because there was a great harvest, God, I will do this. Because you helped bring my family member through illness, God, thank you, I will do this. <clears throat> because you helped us in a moment of crisis, God, now we will do this. We see uh, the nation of Israel doing this often when God had cared for them and helped them with a serious battle or difficulty. So vows were a way of saying, God, I want to thank you. Or, God, you've blessed me so much, I will live with, I will live for you. Sometimes you can make what's called the Nazarite vow in the book of Numbers. You could live for God, devote yourself entirely to him for six months, for a short period of time. Samuel, you remember, Hannah said, God, if you give me a child, I will raise him for you all his life. He will live for you all his life. That was a Nazarite vow, and Samuel did that, of course. But what he's talking about here is people who have made vows and they're not following through. And that's not a good thing. Verse 4, when you make a vow unto God, you better pay it. He has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Don't come to the place where uh, your walk with God is just words that have no meaning or no commitment, no follow through. Yeah, I will do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to do this. I'm going to, God, I'm going to promise you I'm going to do this with my life and then not follow through with it. Um, Verse 5, better is it that you should have not vowed than that you should vow and not pay. Now watch verse 6. Suffer not your mouth to cause your flesh to sin, neither say before the angel, that's what my Bible has, messenger. Messenger and angel in Hebrew are the same word. Think of it as a messenger, that when the messenger comes, that, that you would tell the messenger it was an error. Here's what he's saying. There were priests who, when they were serving people in the temple, uh, they would hear these vows. They would go back to the person and say, have you fulfilled your vow? Maybe it was a vow for money. Are you going now to give God that gift? Have you done this with your life? Whatever the vow was, have you done it? And hold people accountable. 
And it says when the, when the priest would come to check on your vow, don't tell him you made a mistake. <laughs> don't do that because the rest of the verse says, why should God be angry at what you're saying? You made a vow and now you're backing out of it. Now you're, you made a vow and now you're saying, well, I didn't really mean it or I didn't understand what I'm saying. Don't even go there because why should God destroy the work of your hands? Vows were, were very important, not because of what the person was saying or even intending, but the meaning, the weight of importance. This was a vow made to God, the creator of all heaven and earth, the one who has been caring for them. And what he's saying here very clearly uh, your words need to be honored. Your life needs to be honoring to God. God who, when you come to his house, uh, you need to be aware of who God is and reverence him in the right way. When you're praying with him, praying to him, don't just be rattling off at the mouth. Be thoughtful. Be intentional. Be truthful let your let your words be shaped by God's truth and again if you make promises to God honor them when people today as a pastor I've seen it over the years it's the same today it's always been if you're sick if a person is really sick and they're scared God if you will just make me better uh, I will promise to do this sometimes people follow through sometimes they don't God, our marriage is on the rocks. Our son, our daughter is having difficulty in this. If you'll just do this, I will do this. Well, I understand what's being said. And I under understand, and God understands what's happening in our hearts. We just want these needs to be cared for. But when we are making a vow, we really need to understand what we're doing. And we need to handle ourselves in the right way. And as, and as this comes, as chapter 5 begins, as this material comes to the people of Israel, his readers, God is front and center. There's no hiding it. And he's saying there's no meaning in life if a person is not right with God. Meaning in life is found by walking with God. There will never be meaning and satisfaction in life if God is not being honored the right way. The message is really very clear. And it's this other voice that we hear in the book of Ecclesiastes now in chapter five, the first part of it, the second part of it, and then in chapter six, it's all about God. You have to understand there's no meaning in life without God, period. Bring God into the picture care for him the right way and life will just fit together well. Okay, well, we move now to the second part of this chapter and we'll come back and discuss some of these things later. But let's notice in chapter five, verse 10, he moves on to the second subject of this chapter and it helps us to see how people think about finances, people who have set God aside, how they think about finances. And notice in chapter 10 with me, verse, I'm sorry, chapter 5, verse 10, 
just how this subject begins. He that loves silver will not be satisfied with silver. He that loves abundance with increase, he won't enjoy it either. He won't be satisfied. This is vanity. And he talks about why that's true. And he's telling us here that, that money can never be God. Now, that first voice through the book of Ecclesiastes, life without God how they see life, what they think, their reasonings, their conclusions. It's telling us how people feel, how important finances are to them when God is put aside. Now, money is important, we all know that. We need it to operate in this world, but what he's saying here is very true. Think of it this way. We have known the Lord as our Savior for a long time. He has been wonderful for, wonderful for us and to us. We know He's there. We know He is God's Son. We know that He's going to take care of us now as well as forever. Having a Savior, knowing that He is caring for you, makes all the difference in the world. What Jesus is to us, how we think about him, how we feel about him. For those who have no God, dismiss God, they have no Savior. Money is to them what the Savior is to us. How we feel about the Savior, what we think about the Savior, that's how they feel about their finances. That's how they feel about uh, the money that they have. Here's the problem, and here's the real challenge. Money is temporary. It's not going to last. Jesus is eternal. He is always there for us. Jesus is living. He's real. Money doesn't live. Jesus can do anything, and we know that. Money really is limited. And as we, as we look at this, we understand in our life as a, with a Savior, Jesus is so satisfying to us. Money can't always satisfy. And I have in the screen that we, Solomon is saying that we need to avoid being trapped and don't look at this world as if money is everything. It's the key component because money can never be God. And people still think that it brings satisfaction, it solves everybody's problems, it gives peace of mind, it provides security. That's what people think when they've dismissed God. Money becomes everything to them. It becomes very critical to them, most people. And as he reads through this, notice he tries to explain his point. Now, Having come to the temple, repair your relationship with God. You need God to have a meaningful life. Don't think about money as a substitute for God. You can see how those two sections go together as Solomon talks to people, Jewish people, about their, their seeking meaning and finding meaningful life. So let's notice he's made the statement, He that loveth silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase, this is vanity, it's that vapor that, that vanishes so quickly. And notice it's not the wealth itself, it's not the money itself, but the love for money. Big difference. 
And he says the love for abundance with, with increase. And you have a person here who, who has finances, they have their riches, they have their silver, but there's this passion for more, uh, to have more, to get more, to increase. And that's what's driving this particular person. And he says, that won't work. Person who has that kind of outlook on life, that kind of grasping and wanting for more, uh, will never be satisfied. And remember what he's been saying too, learn to be satisfied with the gifts that God gives you. No matter what you have, no, no matter how little you think you may have, be satisfied with what God gives you. Enjoy the riches that God gives, as opposed to this person who's reaching out for more and more and more, or thinks that they need more and more and more. Notice what he says in verse 11. When your goods increase, they are also increased that eat them. Now he's making a, a point here, true or false. Uh, money has a way of disappearing. Yeah, it's true, isn't it? Uh, you get a little extra money somewhere you didn't expect. It. This is great. And then all of a sudden you think, yeah, this is wonderful. I might be able to do this or that. And all of a sudden an appliance needs to be replaced or the kids need something or uh, you need to go to the doctor or, or car repair, whatever it is. Money has a way of disappearing pretty quickly. But what he's saying here is that with the, when there is the increase of finances, what he's noticed, there are also there's also an increase of people that take that money. There are friends that show up. There are family members that need help, uh, that come over and ask for help. There are bill collectors, there are taxes. Maybe there's a new tax. Governments are always coming up with new taxes, aren't they? But as money increases, there are always these hands out that take that and consumes. And that's why it says in, in the last part, uh, the only thing the owner can do is just watch with their eyes. Here it goes, it comes, but it goes so very quickly. Notice verse 12. Verse 12. The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much, or whether he has little or much. Uh, the common worker, uh, the man who's working hard, and he can go to sleep, he's satisfied. He knows what's gonna to happen tomorrow. He's gonna to get up, he's gonna to go to work again, but he is able to sleep. But the man who has a lot, or the woman who has a lot, the abundance of the rich will not allow him to sleep. Why not? Well, he's worried, how am I gonna take care of this? How can I keep it from other people getting it? How can, I, how can I make sure that I don't lose this? How can I do this? How can I get more? And you have a man who is concerned about his money. How in the world can he keep it? And he can't sleep. And then we come to the next in verse 13 where we see a miser. There is a sore evil. Some of your Bibles, sickening, sickening illness. It talks about actually getting sick. There is a, uh, a sickening evil, which I have seen under the sun. This is it, riches kept for the owners thereof to their own hurt. He's talking about people who become ill because of hanging on, not only physically sick, maybe morally 
We saw this back in chapter 4. God will help people, some dishonest people, to realize they're just like animals. They've lost their dignity. It's, it's, and you think, what a price to pay just to hang on to money. People that think that money will satisfy, it will solve your problems, it will give you peace of mind, it will provide security. Not this guy, not in this world. You have this miser who, who is so concerned for his money, it's so captivated him that it's ruining his life. And then he loses it. Notice the next verse. But those riches perish, they go away. By evil travail, and this man has a son, but there is nothing to give him. And this man that, that has had so much, in verse 15, as he came forth from his mother's womb naked, that's the way he will go as he came. He will take nothing of his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. This is a sore evil, that in all points as he came, he will go. What profit, remember that word, what profit, what advantage, what, he has exhausted himself, he has ruined his life in the end, he can't even hold on to it. And it's talked about wealth gained, wealth lost, or wealth loved, wealth lost. And that's why he's making it very clear, money can never be a substitute for God. It just won't work. And you and I know that there are people who live with this fantasy that if their lives, if they could just have more, their lives would completely change. It would be better if they had just a little bit more. They know that. That's how they think. That's what they, that's how their life is shaped and, and they carry this around with them. But uh, Solomon's observation says it's not that way at all. But now we come to a turning point. This is so clear catch this. Notice what he says in verses 18 to the end of the chapter. He says, look at this. Look at the life that God gives. And in, in verse 18, behold is a turning point. Not the man who has hoarded everything and who, who has had it all, but he really hasn't had anything. He says, notice, behold, complete change. This is what I have seen. Notice what I have seen. This is the life that God can give in verse 18. Behold, that which I have seen, it is good, it is beautiful for people to be able to eat and to drink, to enjoy the good of his work that he takes under the sun all the days of his life that God gives him. This is God's gift. This is his portion. Look, there are people who are enjoying life because they have God. They realize that what they have is what God's given to them. God's gifts, good, it's pleasant, it's beautiful. And you have people who are settled down and enjoying life. I'm going back in my mind to Psalm 128. We looked at that. This is the way God blesses the man in his home and takes care of things. And we saw that. And he's saying that here in the same way. Notice, Verse 19, every man also to whom God has given riches and wealth and has given him uh, the power to enjoy it, to take his portion, to rejoice in his labor. This is a gift of God, having finances, having substance, and the ability to enjoy it are two different things. God will enable men to enjoy what they have, whether it's little or much. 
God will do that. If a man is walking with God, if a woman is walking with God, content, thankful for what God has given to them, if they can enjoy what they have now, not just thinking, well, life is something that I'll have in the future when I have a little bit more. No, enjoy what you have now. God will help that man. God will help that person to have true meaning in life. Notice how the chapter closes. For he will not remember the days of his life. He will not remember much remember the days of his life because God answers him in the joy of his heart. That phrase, the first time we've seen it, joy in his heart. We have a man and woman. They have a great life. Their heart is filled. And what he's simply saying is that this person doesn't spend time thinking back over life, whether it was hard and good, because they are so satisfied with what they have now. And he's making an incredible contrast between this person who was discussed earlier, who has everything, holding on to it, it's controlling him. He doesn't have anything, not really. But the people that realize that what God has given them are gifts, really gifts, and that God is there to help them, to give them an attractive life, a good life, a joyful life, that he can care for them. Enjoy what you have now. The greatest treasures you have are the simplest pleasures that you find in your home. And he's now said that over and over again. Here's what you need to be careful for. Me too. There is a temptation sometimes for men and women. I'll start with the men. Men, they may think if I had his job, it would be better for me. My life would be better. Everything would be better if I had his job. If I had his opportunities. If I had been raised in his family, it would be better for me. Um, it's easy to go down. The, if I had his kids, things would be better. A lady may think, well, if I had her life, my life would be better. If I had her personality, my life would be better. If I had her opportunities, uh, my life would be better. If I had her kids, if I had that husband, things would be better. Nah, guys, gals, let's never go there. That's just not the way it works. Solomon is saying, look at the life that God gives. He can fill a person's life with beauty and attractiveness, joy in life, joy for living. Learn to live with what you have now. Slow down, enjoy God's gifts. And it's really very clear what he's saying here. Walk with God and he'll take care of you. And you will have meaning in life, period. Okay, I want to stop right there so we can have our discussion. Our time is gone for this one. Chapter 6 will continue this wonderful theme as he drives his point home. Meaning in life is found with God.